science explains everything we observe much better than any theology, any beliefs about God. Science is the best means humans have to learn facts about reality. What my beliefs about God do for me is allow me to function in the crushing weight of all those facts. This is It's Okay to Go Radio, the show questioning the religious beliefs that influence our lives, the challenges we face leaving them behind, and who we become after we leave. Hello, everyone, and welcome to It's Okay to Go Radio. I'm your host, Haley Carl. My guest today is best-selling author Mike McGarg, and I'd like to introduce him by reading a quote about Mike from Mike's friend, author and speaker, Rob Bell. I don't mean to make this sound overly dramatic, but I've seen Mike talk, both casually and more formally, over the past few years, and this always happens. People lean in and hang on his every word. It isn't just the content of what he says, which blows people's minds, and it isn't just his clarity, it's something else. When I stand in a field at night and look through a telescope, and photons strike my eyes that left a celestial body thousands or millions, or in some cases billions of years ago, that I'm directly connected through physics to something that may not even be there anymore. Mike McGarg became a Christian when he was just seven years old and was an ardent follower of Christianity for many years until a series of events in his adult life began to unravel his faith and he began to doubt the existence of God. I think for so many people, the fact that Jesus is the one and only way to God is like the cornerstone of their faith, the most important realization they have about Jesus. And they're puzzled when I say, I have no idea if that's true or not. Mike began to back away from Christianity, though for a long time he kept this journey to himself. His process of coming to terms with his doubt, his loss of faith, his love and understanding of science and how the world works, and ultimately his acceptance of his own mystical experiences are documented in his new book, Finding God in the Waves. Today, Mike considers himself a Christian, at least by his definition. Every experience that I've had with God in my entire life has been filtered through the lens of the name and the identity of Jesus. It was Jesus who made me feel known and safe when I was young and bullied. It was Jesus who made me feel like God cared for me and that God was close to me. I sat down for a Skype call with Mike last week to discuss faith, science, the idea of certainty addiction, mystical experiences, and one question that has nothing to do with any of those. Which is uh, uh, the zombie apocalypse comes, right? <laughs> I'm in. Right off the bat, I let's talk about your book, Finding God in the Waves. If you could give uh, a brief synopsis of just kind of your background and uh, where you come from as far as a person who has more or less been living in the paradox between Christianity and atheism. Oh, I've got the elevator pitch version, no big deal. 
I grew up Southern Baptist. I became an atheist as an adult, uh, largely because of a family crisis that led me to examine the Bible more deeply than I had before. I was an atheist for several years. And then I had a crazy mystical experience where I felt like I was in the presence of God. As an atheist, that's kind of confusing and bewildering. So I did the logical thing and got a CAT scan. And when a CAT scan found no brain tumor, uh, I went off to try to figure out what that experience was. So I, I tried looking at theology and scriptures, not only Christian scriptures, but uh, many different faiths. And they all just seemed like, you know, superstition and silliness. So I started to look for where we came from and why we're here in cosmology and particle physics. And when that did seem to lean towards a plausible pantheism, maybe, um, that didn't describe why people experience God, and by people I mean me in particular. So I started studying neuroscience to see how human brains respond to God. And that journey from a conventional theistic faith to atheism into what I have now, which is a kind of a science-based mysticism is the arc of finding God in the waves. Now, when you talk about this mystical experience, are you talking about the moment in the book where you were at that uh, conference with Rob Bell and hearing kind of that audible voice in your head? Or are you talking about the moment after being on the beach with the waves or both? For the sake of interviews, I'm, I'm conflating them and making them one event just because it's uh, <laughs> but no, there were there were two events in one day uh, that were distinct in character. I, I know that you mentioned that in the book, you're, you're talking about um, the audible voice and, and kind of was the brain scan I, again, was the brain scan for the audible voice or was the brain scan for the other Kind of thing because I know in the book you mentioned that moment when you're praying to God or, or talking to God on the beach, and at the moment you thought or or said the word Jesus, these waves rushed up on the beach and you were 25 feet away. You didn't mention this in the book. I'm assuming you did. Did you go through the process of checking the uh, the tides and kind of when <laughs> that schedule? Was? I did. Um, you know, the tide was going out. Um, mm -hmm. but it, it, you know, it's the, the, that wave felt like a miracle for me, but I don't expect anybody to buy that. There's so many plausible ways <laughs> to describe that, that, that I don't even waste my time trying to use that as some proof that God exists. That's fine. I, I think one of the main things I appreciate about you is that you've had all these, you know, you've had these moments and you actually take the time to look up this stuff scientifically and to see if like, how can I potentially explain this? Have you had a mystical experience since? Yes. Do you take the time every single time to, to look this up or at this point are you just like, you know what? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't face them with the same scrutiny I once did, but that's not to say it's only because I make so few claims. Um, so when I have something that happens that's beautiful and profound, I just know it could 
be something that's happening in my brain and that's it. Um, so I don't need to like go disprove what I already hold so loosely if that makes any sense. I, I don't, and I, I honestly, I haven't, I haven't talked about any of the moments I've had since that one on the beach. Uh, cause I'd, I'd like to have them for myself. There's a, there's a sacrifice you make in telling a story and that's something that shaped you and changed your life becomes a tale that other people relay to each other. And the process of telling that story over and over distances you from the experience. So I kind of jealously guard uh, those later moments in the light. What is it that, uh, to you anyway, that God explains about our world that we live in better than science ever could? And on the flip side, something that science explains about our world that your idea of God never, ever could. (laughs) The second one's a lot easier. (laughs) let's hear it uh science explains everything we observe much better than any theology any beliefs about god i mean everything science science is the best means humans have to learn facts about reality full stop full stop what what my beliefs about god do for me is allow me to function in the crushing weight of all those facts and not just me i tend to be a fan of rabble rousers and people who overturn systems so obviously that explains my affinity for jesus Uh, if you remove jesus from the highly neutered version presented by modern american protestants uh it's pretty fiery person Uh, (laughs) he really really got angry at oppression And I think the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. follows the same rabble-rousing spirit. And both of them said things that were deeply unscientific that changed the world. So Martin Luther King would say that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. And science would say that the moral arc of the universe bends towards entropic heat death or entropy. (laughs) (laughs) So this belief, unscientific though it may be, that justice is some inevitable feature of the universe gives people the emotional strength and social cohesion to fight against systems at odds that seem impossible. And so the, the amazing thing to me about faith and my faith in particular is it allows us to pull a pattern of hope and compassion and empathy from a data set that doesn't necessarily support that. And so even if we're wrong about that being some fundamental component of reality, the belief transforms our behavior in a way that can make the world more loving and just. And is that what you mean when you say that your faith helps you to kind of function amidst those crushing facts that surround you? Yeah, the, 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 the universe as presented by science is cold and indifferent. And the universe as relayed as a part of God is nurturing. I feel like a number of atheists find a certain amount of hope in, in the facts. It does give them a warm and cozy feeling to have and, and to discover and have these facts. And they don't seem to need that hope what is it why do people like you and me 
seem to need that other end of it. Those people who are able to, I think, are just very mature people who've dealt with their own shit. Um, so, you know, one thing I want to make sure people never take from my work is that I'm in some way anti-atheist. Right. I am, I am rampantly pro-atheist. <laughs> and I would very much like society to get out of their way and not oppress. What about nihilist? Let's go. No. <laughs> I, well, I'm like a nihilist already. So uh, those are my people. So, but I, I would say the reason so many people are drawn towards the mystery represented by spirituality and religion is because they have human brains. And studies are pretty consistent in showing that we have a number of biases and we have another, a number of innate features that draw us towards spiritual belief and practice and that we find those things gratifying. Think about Sam Harris and waking up. So he's figured out how to redeem parts of spirituality he thinks are important in a completely atheistic context. And I think that's, I think that's marvelous. I think for me, based on my own life experiences, that process is easier when I place them within a context of the divine which I define very ambiguously, but even within specifically historic Christianity. You question a lot when you're at this uh, conference that we mentioned earlier. You, you talk about talking to God and, and feeling crazy, like, am I just talking to myself? Is there a problem, do you think, with it maybe just being yourself or having this idea of God inside of you rather than outside of you? Well, I think I'm part of what's outside of me. The distinction that I'm somehow separate from outside is illusionary. You know, I mean, every sentence, I'm throwing septillions of molecules out of my lungs and into the air. <laughs> Every time I go in between breath, I'm pulling septillions more atoms into my lungs and there are drops of water in the Atlantic Ocean. So every moment I'm mixing with the outside of me. Um, so that they're, they're, as a nihilist, I would say I don't really believe in a me to begin with. Um, but to the, the idea that there's this thing, this part of reality I call me, um, there's this, this ancient faith practice in Islam um, called Sufism. And they were mystics, and they looked inward to find a God that existed beyond the inwardness. And so I think one way to look at God uh, as this intersection of neuroscience and physics, basically, is we turn inside to find a resonance of everything within us. So if you said that in an atheistic context, you would say we're the universe thinking about itself. And if you put that in a, in, a, in, a, in a theistic or even a pantheistic or panentheistic context, then you say we are God thinking about itself. I guess I was just thinking about the idea that I, I've thought the same thing when I've prayed or when I've talked to God and, and uh, there is that kind of that um, editor inside that says, you know, like, what are you doing? you know, every time. And I guess what I had gotten comfortable with is the idea that in addition to being connected to everything 
outside of myself that I was as much as I was a part of that too. So why couldn't I talk to myself? Or what was the problem with God potentially being inside of inside of me, my brain or heart or whatever, and me being at a level with that, I guess. And and then that being okay that I could talk to that part of myself. Yeah, um, it's real. And you you seem to question that. You you seem to want it to be also as just as much an external thing. And maybe I'm wrong about that. Am I am I wrong? No, you're totally <laughs> right. But the way the way I write the book is first person non omniscient. So I made a choice as I told the story. I would tell the story as I believe things at that point in the story. So that people may find some part of my narrative, the personal is universal, that would resonate with them because they're in that frame. So if I if I took the frame I'm in now, told the entire narrative through that frame, a lot of people would get left out. Mm-hmm. So at that time, I did have this incredible longing for God to be more than something found within. Now I don't. It just doesn't bother me at all. I very much agree with the that great philosopher, Albus Dumbledore, who said, of course, it's in your head, Harry. Why should that make it any less real? You know, our, our, our internal landscape is a part of reality. It's not uh, fictional. Now that you're living in this paradox, how do you feel about death and dying? Does that does the thought of it frighten you? Do you feel at peace with all of that? What do you what do you think happens? I feel completely at peace with death. I don't fear it. Nor do I rush toward it. I rather enjoy this gift of consciousness. I would like to to explore more while I can. Um, in terms of what happens after we die, I don't have a clue. Um, and I may never know. It may be <laughs> that after death there is no knowing. Uh, I think that whatever happens, we are in a very real way reunited with the the ground of being with the source of all and that may mean to become being itself and to have no awareness anymore Uh, but if i on the afterlife find myself uh, faced with pearly gates and a saint uh, i'll be overjoyed to figure out that my expectations were far too low My next question that I thought of was something that it's something I've been talking about with uh, friends lately because uh, it does seem to to drive a distinction as far as far as humans go. And uh, I don't know how much it delves into faith, but it seems like a fun question to explore with you, which is uh, uh, the zombie apocalypse. Comes, right. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Do you feel the need i mean obviously you fight i'm assuming you 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 fight tooth and nail to survive through this thing right yeah i wouldn't just like stand and let the zombies eat me so you fight as far as continuing the human race goes are we worth it are we good enough to do we deserve it i guess 
I, absolutely. I, I love humans. I'm a huge fan of the whole species as much as it bewilders me. We might be it. And what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? There may be no other part of the universe that can think of itself. We don't know. I mean, it's possible there's other intelligent life out there. Uh, but the Fermi paradox um, makes the silence of the night sky existentially terrifying. Now you could make, you know, this moral judgment that perhaps it's better for the universe to exist without consciousness. Uh, but it's had plenty of time to do that. And we'll have plenty of time to do that again. So while we have our chance in the light, I think we should take it. And that more than just a zombie apocalypse, I want to fight for that now. That's why I'm so crazy about climate change and human justice issues and ecological issues. We're and nuclear proliferation, we're doing a decent job creating our own zombie apocalypse now. We're not free until we're all free. So let's uh, let's maybe slow down the rate that we're burning ancient plankton and you know reverting the atmosphere to a Jurassic or Triassic version of itself. Uh, let's actually do what we say we care about. Let's provide liberty and justice for all. Um, those are things that I, I think are important as a humanist, uh, even though I'm a Christian humanist. I think the thing that we were talking earlier about, you know, science being on one, like the, the idea of the facts and science, if you're just going by that, is kind of a cold outlook. And I think the reason is because it doesn't factor in. Science lends itself very well towards the rest of the universe you just described, anything that's not capable of real kind of consciousness or intelligent life, it doesn't factor that in. Everyone's on a level playing field. You, me, lions, plankton, we're all there. So we seem to kind of think of ourselves as leveled up from all that because of consciousness. It's really only because of consciousness that we're able to see ourselves as leveled up. So are we, I mean, like, are we, should we, you know, consider ourselves different and special than any other form of life on this planet or, you know, potentially on other planets? We are different and we are special, but so is every other species. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I don't want to just preserve and protect human life. I want to preserve and protect life. In general, it's remarkable what talents we find in the animal kingdom. It turns out that uh, chimpanzees have better and faster memory about numbers than humans do. Uh, yeah, so you can you can take a screen, you can flash up numbers one through ten after you've trained chimpanzees to count in order, which they can, and for just a few milliseconds display the numbers and then cover them with blocks, and the chimps can with great accuracy tap out the numbers in order without seeing them. And when you try the same experiment with humans, you find we're terrible at it. Numbers. So in this in this context, chimpanzees are better with numbers than people. If you train pigeons to look at collections of art and then you ask them to look at a painting, two paintings, one of which was painted by the same painter, the other which is a forgery, uh, pigeons are better at picking out the real painting than humans are. Art and pigeons. 
So we do have this like tendency to be very anthrocentric. And I'm trying to avoid that. I think in the same way that uh, we harshly judge uh, our ancestors for some of the ways they treated other people, our descendants may judge us harshly for restricting personhood solely to homo sapiens. Are you vegetarian or vegan? Are you? I want to be. You want to be? Yeah, and I can go two, three days. Mm-hmm. And then I get the the carnivore's itch. <laughs> and it has to be scratched. Um, I thought about the other day, like, it has been effortless me, effortless for me to be monogamous for 16 years of marriage. Mm-hmm. But I can't go three days without eating another animal. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just... It's really sad. Yeah, and maybe maybe the answer is not for everyone to go vegan or vegetarian, especially since that's not really viable for our offspring. Right. Uh, but instead to simply support, you know, more humane versions of meat production and yeah. just eat a whole lot less meat. We don't need meat right. every meal. Um, a couple of times a week should be fine. Well, I want to talk about... Uh something you brought up that I that I keep hearing over and over again from different folks. Um, primarily, I first heard it from uh, Frank Schaefer, and that's this idea of um, us kind of having this addiction to certainty. You talk about it in your book a little bit, and I, I'm curious how you think we can go about kicking our addiction to certainty. Be wrong a lot helps. Uh, that's That's been my technique. I've, I've been wrong about the fundamental nature of reality several times in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've learned that my certainty is almost always misplaced and that my need to maintain it mainly produces anxiety. Right. So now I'm just very certain that I'm uncertain. <laughs> and how do we, <laughs> I just, how I just do we help folks? That. Cause it seems like we're, especially in the political climate we have right now in the United States, you can see that certainty addiction playing out in real time all the time. And, you know, how do we approach conversations with another person that has that certainty addiction? How do we, you know, help to even, you know, facilitate a change along those lines? Uh, Well, I was really good at that until this election. (laughs) Um, and although I'm not certain about the right way forward, I, I will admit I have been very certain that one candidate in particular is uniquely unqualified in the history of this democracy to be president. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in general, you want to avoid arousing someone's amygdala if you want to change their mind. Um, and how does one arouse the amygdala? Fear and anger. Ah. So a good salesman will never walk up to you and say, listen, if you're thinking about buying a Ford, you're an idiot. Because now you're on the defensive, your cognitive guards are up, and there's no chance of them getting a commission. So a good salesman tries to get you to say yes three to five times in a row get you open and receptive. Um, 
and since I spent time in advertising and study human brains, when I have conversations on things I disagree with people on, I start by thinking about how to get them to say or think yes a few times first. What are things we can agree on? What, mm-hmm. what common foundation can we build? Um, and then from there, start to use stories to illustrate my perspective as opposed to a presentation of facts and figures. Mm-hmm. And I may include facts and figures in those stories, but uh, I, I, as much as possible, story disarms us. Factual presentations turn on our skeptic. You said you've had difficulty with it during this season. I get season. so mad about the rise of Donald Trump that I shoot my mouth off in anger, which I almost never do. But doing that only serves to reinforce the amygdala arousal of someone I might be trying to talk to. Now, it's not all bad. If you're trying to reinforce what someone already believes, amygdala arousal is just fine. Um, And so in some cases, I've been trying to submit people's opposition to Trump and have then strategically played the, um, the amygdala button. I'm real manipulative that way. (laughs) <laughs> During one of the tweets, I pretended to be very angry and all caps an F-bomb at Donald Trump. And I've Ooh. never done that on Twitter. And everybody was like, whoa. And they thought like I had this very authentic presentation of emotion when I was You're literally like just trying to program their brains. <laughs> and it worked pretty well. Yeah, anger is a really great and really terrible tool that uh, in our emotional bank that we can uh, use. It can kind of get us in motion towards something really beneficial and it can also destroy us. It's one of those really tricky ones. I try to use it sparingly. Hey, it's okay to goers. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Science Mike. If you are indeed enjoying this episode and you have a moment, I need to ask a favor. If you could go to iTunes, find It's Okay to Go Radio, and give us a five-star rating, or better yet, a review, that would be so wonderful. And if you want to even go a step further, we are now accepting donations to help keep this project alive and running strong. If you are able to help It's Okay to Go with a donation, please go to our website at www.itsoktogo.com and click on Donate. Thank you so much. And now back to our conversation with Science Mike. I know you mentioned earlier you've got kind of a vague definition of, of uh, or idea of what God is, but if you could try to put it into words, what is God to you now, or who is God to you? I have these axioms in my book where I kind of provide a scientific justification for anything I believe about God. And so in that, I think I said God is at least the set of forces that created and sustained the universe as experienced via a psychosocial model in human brains. So that would be my like my ground floor definition of God. Today, if we lean a little bit more into mystery, I would call God being itself, not a being, but being itself, the ground of being, the source of all ultimate reality um and i I actually today have (laughs) 
a Trinitarian view of God in line with Christian theology. Interesting. So God has three components. One is the Godhead, that source of everything. The second component would be the Christ, which is this invitation to reconciliation towards peace that the Godhead issues. And the third component would be the Spirit, which is how we find God within ourselves, is uh, God is literally within ourselves. Um, now, what I admit is that is is a construct and a model I'm projecting onto reality, not a fact claim. Sure. Well, it's, it's interesting because you said earlier in the book, too, that the Trinity has never been explained to you in a way that is sufficient or, or makes sense. And is that model an explanation of the Trinity that is sufficient and makes sense to you? Well, that's post. Uh, this all happened after the book. Uh, I made friends with a guy named oh, okay. Richard Rohr, who is a a Franciscan monk and he's big into Trinitarian theology and laid it out in a way that I found quite compelling, still utterly without factual basis, <laughs> but very compelling. So one last thing, and that is um, to our my listeners out there who have either left organized religion or kind of in that living in that paradoxical area or potentially thinking about going down that road, um, what would be your advice to them as someone who has stepped out and lives, I guess, kind of in the freedom of not having that filter, that biblical certainty filter to put all of your questions and all of your thoughts through? Don't be afraid. There's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, we're just we're talking about there's as many ideas about God as there are people. There's probably more ideas about God than there are people. So the one you had doesn't work anymore. Okay. Find the new one and enjoy the process. And maybe your new idea of God is there is no God at all. Okay. The important thing is that you find a people group, a community that can love you and support you and be a part of your life. The problem I have with the exodus away from religion is not a decline in God. If there is a God of any traditional sense, that God has no need of our belief. Uh, what concerns me is the epidemic of loneliness and depression that has followed the failure of American institutions like the church in providing people with social support and comfort. So invest in people and a community who can love you as you are. Um, as much as I do my own thing and speak freely, I'm actually a member of the United Methodist Church now uh, because they let me be weird and don't try to rein me in and, um, and support wherever I am on my journey. So there may be a different church that works for you. There's a lot of churches out there. There may be no church that works for you. I have a lot of people that follow me who their spiritual experience mainly happens around dinner tables and bottles of wine. And I think it's beautiful. Uh, just never think that you're alone in this. There are millions, literally millions of people walking down the same road at the same time. Mike, thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, are you still on your book tour right now for Finding God in the Waves? Oh, yes. 
<laughs> oh, yes. So where can we find out information about that and uh, where are you headed next? Uh, let's see. Next is, gosh, Grand Rapids. Um, and then uh, you can find out everywhere I'm going at findinggodinthewaves.com slash tour, which I'm actually going to right now. So, uh, yeah, Grand Rapids, Kansas, then Savannah, do three stops in L.A., Portland, Seattle, Thomasville, Georgia, Boston, Grand Haven. There are a lot of places. So uh, it'll go all the way through March. And there's plenty of chances to see me on the road. If you go to findingonthewaves.com, you can learn more about the book. If you want to connect with my other work, just go to asksciencemike.com. Fantastic. Mike, thank you again so much. <laughs> thank you. It's been really a pleasure. I love the conversation. Thanks again, everyone, for listening today. You can check out Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist podcast at iTunes. More information about Mike's new book, Finding God in the Waves, or Mike McGar, can be found at www.mikemcgar.com. That's M-I-K-E-M-C-H-A-R-G-U-E.com. If you would like to learn more about this project, It's Okay to Go, please look us up on our website, itsoktogo.com, or on Facebook and Twitter, at It's Okay to Go, on Instagram, search the hashtag It's Okay to Go. All of our music is provided by Jordan Cooper, that's jordancoopermusic.com. My name is Haley Carl, and we'll see you again soon.